Hello and welcome to the first week of this course, which is called The Tyranny of Oneness. Um, I'm really excited about this content because it's going to give me an opportunity to delve into a little bit about uh, what parotheology is attempting to do and trying to put it into contrast with confessional Christianity and the predominant forms of Christianity that we know. But it's also going to introduce the work of Hegel, who is perhaps the greatest philosopher uh, who ever lived, maybe the high point of philosophy uh, in many people's opinion. Um, and also, um, it's a real opportunity for me to talk about, uh, how can I put it, let's say the catastrophic failure of the emerging church <laughs> and um, talk about why I think it failed, where I think it went wrong and primarily to, to pivot from that and to say why I'm concerned about the direction of many of my peers and a lot of the people who I know and I'm friends with and have worked with but the direction that some of them have taken some of them into progressive politics, into liberal Christianity, some into kind of psychedelic enlightenment, uh, some into kind of, uh, you know, uh, forms of perennial philosophy or Enneagram or uh, kind of New Age kind of approaches. So there's a whole pile of different directions that people I know have taken. And I want to try to articulate uh, my concern with some of those directions. Um, and even with people who are very good in, in those positions, like, uh, you know, I don't want to name too many names. I'll, I'll only name names of people I respect, right? I respect enough to be able to disagree with. So someone like Richard Rohr is someone who is a very smart and thoughtful individual um, and uh, someone who is worthy of engaging critically with. So I want to take people like that, Richard Rohr, and begin to articulate uh, what the difference is between parotheology and that type of Catholic mysticism. Um, and I guess to start with then, I'll, I'll give a context for why I decided to do this course. And I decided to do it because I was worried about what I saw. I, I, you know, when I first encountered the emerging church, I was very intrigued by it. I was interested in it. I got involved with it. It was a great... Um, uh, delivery mechanism for many of the ideas that I was bringing to the table. Uh, when I came from Belfast into America, a lot of people who were engaged with the emerging church uh, got interested in what I was doing. And that was a fertile ground. And actually, some people who came out of the emerging church, I think, really did forge a good direction. Uh, but to a large extent, uh, the emerging church then basically dissipated and went into you know progressive liberal or kind of uh, uh, liberal evangelical kind of positions uh, some people traditional church Catholic mysticism um, and then for others they left entirely Christianity and they went into more kind of Eastern influenced forms of spirituality uh, and then some went into the kind of Eastern forms of spirituality mixed with kind of uh, psychedelics, right? So those are some of the directions that people took from the emerging church. They, they weren't the only directions, but they were not the direction that I was hoping it would take. Um, and basically what happened is, you could say that the emerging church grew out of a desire, or it grew out of a recognition 
of certain deadlocks within evangelicalism and certain contradictions within evangelicalism um, and certain kind of repressed uh, truths, you know, the repression of doubt and unknowing and ambiguity. Uh, and it, it was, there was a desire to celebrate those things, to bring them to the surface, uh, rather than to try to create a system that had the answer for everything. And then when you create that system that has an answer for everything, you know, you start to see cracks within it. Now, my work was always really from the beginning to take those cracks and to go deeper into them and to get to the point at which we are able to uh, affirm these cracks and contradictions rather than uh, kind of like uh, try to do away with them. By the way, I hope the fridge is making noises. Hopefully you can't hear that. So I wanted to go deeper into these cracks and deadlocks and contradictions um, and uh, eventually that would give rise to a different form of faith and it's in the tradition of radical theology and the form that I do is I call it parotheology. But what kind of happened for many people is as their evangelicalism began to crack and to break under the strain, um, they sought new forms of spirituality that were totalizing, that, that, that kind of um, promised a wholeness and a oneness that the previous position wasn't offering. So people then moved towards other, what you could call spiritualities of oneness. Now, for want of a better frame, you could say that there are, the, the, the philosophy and the spirituality of oneness is the predominant spirituality, kind of always has been. And two versions of it are one, that the universe is an organic whole. It is a type of oneness and some sort of disturbance has entered into the universe. And that disturbance is a contingent one. It didn't have to happen and it can be removed. And so the movement is from wholeness and balance into disorder, into a kind of utopic new kind of order in the future, right? Whether that's in the next life or whether it's in this life. And so that's very, you know, traditional confessional Christianity. There is a oneness, there is a fall and there is redemption. And then the other primary spirituality of oneness is the idea that everything is one and the idea of a disturbance in the one that we feel in our lives when things aren't working whenever there's violence and destruction and all of these negative things that that is a type of illusion a veil of illusion and that what we have to do is to try to penetrate that veil of illusion and see the truth the truth is that there is a oneness and a wholeness um, at the core of everything. So there's, there's two types of spiritualities of the one. The universe is an organic whole in both of them. One, you can say there is an ontological break. There is a break at the, at the kind of the core of reality. And the other is there is a type of um, illusion. Uh, that is that is that is covering over the fact that everything is already one and so depending on which spiritual path you choose or which guru you get one guru will help you uh, you know through certain practices to kind of get rid of the imbalance 
um, and get oneness or will help you to see that everything already is one. And um, this is something that I want to, over the next five uh, sessions, begin to question. I want to question it as being intellectually wrong, so I want to show that it's philosophically incorrect. I want to show that it is incorrect in terms of the nature of reality, in terms of the scientific method of what we discover about reality. But I also want to look at how it is damaging and dangerous for us as individuals, and it is damaging and dangerous for us in community uh, with each other. That there are damaging things that come out of this. And then also, I want to argue and show that there is a way of reading Christianity that provides an answer to this problem, that provides a different way of being in the world, a different way than the way of oneness. Um, and we're going to do all of that in five weeks. And the central figure from all, for all this is Hegel. Uh, actually, in Hegel's book, The Phenomenology of Spirit, he goes on this journey of exploring reason and basically uncovering deadlocks and contradictions in reality. And then he gets to Christianity. And for him, Christianity uh, has this profound insight built into its very heart. Now, we're not going to get to there for another five sessions, but we'll get there in the end, I promise you. So this first session is just an introduction. Uh, it's going to be an introduction to the concepts that we will be coming back to again and again in different ways. Um, and I'll start with the three laws of thought. So basically within philosophy, there are three laws of thought uh, that are attributed really to Aristotle, but um, really get articulated uh, properly later on by people like uh, Leibniz and others. And the three laws of thought are, one, the law of non-contradiction. And the law of non-contradiction simply means that something can't both be and not be at the same time. It can't, it, you can't have, a, it can't be true and not true at the same time, right? Something, if something's true, it's not not true. If it's not true, it's not true, right? Um, I just made that more complicated than it needed to be. Basically, the law of non-contradiction is... Uh, something can't both be true and not true at the same time. Very simple. Secondly, there is the law of excluded middle. And the law of excluded middle basically says that something um, is either true or not true. It can't have some sort of weird middle position, right? Either the Battle of Hastings happened in 1066 or it didn't. You can't have it in some sort of weird kind of superposition, right? And then the third law is the law of identity. And the law of identity is something is what it is, right? Now, the point of these three laws is at first, when you hear them, they're like so obvious, right? You almost go like, why would anybody have to express these? Um, but in early philosophy, they were attempting to, uh, you know, discover some basic rules, axioms that you can build from. And the idea is that if these three laws aren't real, we wouldn't be able to think. There would be no thought, there would be no argument, nothing would make sense, everything would be utter chaos, right? 
And so it's not that you argue to these laws of thought, it's that these laws of thought must be presupposed in order to reason. They're already embedded in, in logic itself. Uh, they're embedded in reality itself, right? Um, if, it, if they weren't, I mean, you can't really conceptualize what the world would look like if they weren't, right? Because everything is premised on the idea that things are what they are, uh, something can't be in a weird position between truth and falsehood and, um, and something can't both be something and be its opposite at the same time, right? They're, they're all kind of very interlinked, right? They're all very interconnected. Um, now then, the interesting thing is that Hegel, uh, one of the great philosophers of the kind of 18th and 19th centuries, he... Uh, through careful analysis of reason, starts to question these three laws of thought. Um, and that is crazy, right? That's madness at first, right? Um, it's actually almost inconceivable how one could do that. Uh, and interestingly, this is the difference between analytic philosophy and continental philosophy. I'll come back to the difference uh, a little bit later in this seminar, but, but basically analytic philosophy generally rejects Hegel, right? Going like Hegel is where philosophy goes off the rails, whereas continental philosophy has always had um, a very close relationship with Hegel. Even if it's a critical relationship with Hegel, it is one that takes him seriously. So analytic philosophers tend not to take Hegel seriously. Continental philosophers do. Now, um, Hegel is most famous for, and by the way, we're talking philosophy, but we'll, we'll get beyond that in a second, you know, but we'll do some basic philosophy. Hegel is best known as a philosopher of the dialectic. Um, and he basically is best known for a type of thinking that makes progress. So how do we progress in thought? Well, for Hegel, basically, you start where you're at, right? Um, and every given epoch has questions and issues that, that it faces, right? So, and Hegel, by the way, he basically goes through the history of, of entire human thought in order to, to see what the questions were at particular times. So you go back far enough and there's a question. And the question uh, you know, might be the question of freedom. Is there freedom in the world? And so you put together a thesis, a position. And then uh, in dialectics, what happens is you put a position forward and then someone else brings the antithesis, the opposite position. So freedom, well, determinism, the existence of God, uh, the non-existence of God, the eternity of the universe, the temporality of the universe, right? So there's a thesis is put forward on any question whatsoever. Then someone comes along and gives an opposite position. And then through this debate, an honest, open, intelligent debate, uh, a synthesis occurs, which is a type of way of bringing together the strengths of both positions um, into a higher unity, and then that becomes a thesis. And then that thesis generates an antithesis. And then through debate, there, those discussions happen and create a synthesis that is kind of reconciles the two. And this process keeps on going. So the history of philosophy in this view is like a, that philosophy gradually solves problems. And as it solves problems, it creates disciplines. 
So at first there was no disciplines, there was just philosophy and then philosophy branches out into mathematics, might branch out into physics and chemistry, biology, then branches out into sociology, anthropology, psychology. And each of these can be seen as progressions of thought uh, that have been part of this dialectic movement, right? And so Hegel is the philosopher of the thesis, the antithesis and the synthesis. And this is kind of like a, an ongoing, never finished project. The only problem is that isn't Hegel. Right? That is this terrible misreading of Hegel that has resulted from the fact that he's incredibly difficult to read <laughs> and most people don't read him. And uh, so he's become associated with a position that is basically the opposite of of, of what he is. Now this happens to so many philosophers and thinkers and, and people, famous people in the world, is that uh, as Todd McGowan says in the book, um, got it over there, Emancipation After Hegel, which is the book by the way this course is based on. Right? If you want to do this course in a deep way, I really recommend you buy that book and you read it. This seminar that I'm giving is very closely connected with the introduction and the first chapter of that book. And in the very beginning of the book, Todd McGowan says that basically every great person of history, uh, usually in the direct aftermath of their life, there is a great travesty, a great betrayal, and their name is associated with something that they really shouldn't be associated with. So Freud is associated with ego psychology. Um, uh, Nietzsche is associated with the Nazis. Um, uh, who else? What else? I mean... Uh, you know, Jesus was associated with empire, right? Whatever, like these great thinkers have these weird kind of reversals where their name gets associated with something that really isn't part of them at all. And for Hegel, his name is associated with this progressive type of thinking, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, moving ever upwards in a, in a kind of like, you know, it's not like without its problems, it's not like an even keel thing. In fact, that's the thing about dialectics. It's not this this very simple cause and effect. It's bouncing, right, to extremes and these fights and these conflicts that eventually give rise to greater and greater insight. But the argument of someone like Todd McGowan and someone like Slavoj Žižek and others is that Hegel, Hegel's dialectic is doing something much more radical. So what I want to do is I want to try to isolate what that is in this introductory seminar and then we're going to look at how that pans out politically, religiously and in terms of our own um, uh, psychology. Yes, Hegel talks about how there is a thesis, some problem that arises in life. But what Hegel says is it's not that then someone comes in from the outside with the antithesis it's that the position generates its own antithesis. There is this movement in which you put a position forward and that position begins to crumble under its own weight as you look at it, as you analyze it, as you see it, and it generates another position. And there is a contradiction within the idea. And as you wrestle through that contradiction, you go deeper into it and you resolve it but you resolve it by moving deeper into another contradiction. And actually what the history of thought is, is it is this movement from one contradiction to another, 
from a very superficial contradiction to more difficult ones and more difficult ones and more difficult ones until you get to something that is could be called an intractable contradiction. You keep moving. It's like you're not moving upwards in progress. You're moving deeper into something, deeper and deeper, and you're digging a well deeper. And eventually, you get to the quantum level of thought. And at the quantum level of thought, the law of non-contradiction, excluded middle and identity, these laws that seem so um, permanent, you glimpse that they're not. You glimpse that at the very quantum level of reason, these laws of, of non-contradiction basically don't hold. Now, you never see it directly. This is very, very important. You can never observe it. In fact, as soon as you speak it, as soon as you observe it, you take away the contradiction, you put it into language, you put it into understanding, and you domesticate it. And this is why Hegel very rarely says explicitly what he's doing. You have to follow the journey, you have to experience it for yourself. And it's a very long and difficult journey. Um, you can't simply say life has contradiction built into its heart. You can say that, but when you say it, you're kind of like stepping outside of it and you're looking at it. Um, and what Hegel is wanting to do is he is wanting to help you directly encounter that contradiction. Now, this is not dissimilar. I was talking to a physicist actually last week in the Netherlands. He came to a talk of mine and I was doing a talk on Hegel. And at the end, he said, I'm a physicist. And he says, this is interesting because in, in, in quantum mechanics, he says, you know, we cannot grasp the, uh, the contradiction or the deadlock in reality directly. As soon as you observe it, 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 it basically, it crunches into a position, right? So you only ever indirectly um, get a sense of it. It's revealed always behind your back. And uh, we know this with wave particle duality, for example, is that, that the that light is basically crunched into a position depending on how it is recorded. The recording device, the observation, the, um, is what helps define what it is. And so you never, as soon as you basically grasp light, you lose its contradiction. But there is a way indirectly through experimentation to glimpse the superpositioning. So remember when I said that, you know, the Battle of Hastings, it either happened in 1066 or it didn't. There's no weird, there's no weird middle position, right? There's no, there's no weird place where it both did and didn't happen, right? Um, well, maybe when you heard me say that, you, if, you, if you know about physics a little bit, you might be thinking about Schrodinger's cat because the, the thought experiment Schrodinger's cat is precisely um, a critique of the law of excluded middle, right? It's precisely this weird thought experiment in which, let me try and remember it, <laughs> you have a cat, right? And the cat is in this box. And in the box, there is a, a, a poisonous capsule. And the poisonous capsule is connected to a device that is recording the uh, decay of a subatomic particle. And this subatomic particle, um, it might disintegrate uh, or it might remain stable. And depending on what it does, uh, it will have a reaction with this gas capsule. If it disintegrates, the gas capsule will release and Stroganer's cat will die. And if the subatomic particle remains stable, 
I'm hopefully I'm getting it right. Look it up on Wikipedia to, to get it completely right. But if it, if it doesn't decay, uh, then the gas will not be released. And so from a, from a common sense position, we go, well, the cat, we can't see inside the box. The cat is either alive or dead, right? We don't know. The cat's been in there for 24 hours. It's either alive or dead. But the weird thing is about the quantum world is that actually that subatomic particle is in superposition. It is neither stable or unstable. It is not taken a particular form. And so in a weird way, the cat is neither alive nor dead until you look at it. And as soon as you open the box and look at it, it's going to be alive or dead. But there is this weird um, superposition, right? And you can't see it directly, right? It's only implied by the theory of, of the quantum world, by the experimentations of the quantum world. Um, and I've talked about this in some of my Paro seminars. I've talked about how Albert Einstein, who first really entered into the world of the quantum, he didn't walk through the door. He felt that this kind of idea of, of the kind of uh, the, the end of the, the laws of thought, right? That can't be true. And it was, some, it was Niels Bohr who comes along and says, well, no, actually, reality seems to, at its quantum level, defy these ironclad laws. That at the very core of reality itself is this chaos. And that the formation of order seems to be a way to cover over that chaos, right? But the chaos is not something that is directly seen. It is indirectly uh, revealed. And that's kind of what Hegel is doing with his laws of thought. He's basically as well saying, you don't start by questioning the laws of reason because you can't. You have to start by believing them. But what happens is as you, in the most systematic way possible, begin to dissect the problems of reason, eventually you'll get to the point of what he calls absolute knowledge. And absolute knowledge is the knowledge that there is contradiction hard baked into thought itself. Now for Hegel, there's two, there's two things. There's, there's thought and there's being. So there's thought, which is reason and logic. And then there is reality, stuff. And Hegel argues that contradiction is in both. Uh, in fact, that's how they're connected. That's why thought and being are interconnected because they're, they're interconnected in that they are both not at one with themselves. Um, now, this, is a, this can sound very complicated, um, but let's take a very simple example. A simple example is if I say, and I'll take an example from the book actually, um, where uh, uh, Todd McGowan uses the phrase uh, Leonard Nimroy, isn't that the guy's name? Leonard Nimroy, hopefully it's right, uh, is Spock, right? The guy, the actor who played Spock. So that's a, that's a thing of, that's a statement of identity. I am saying this guy Leonard is Spock. That's, a, that's identity. He is the actor who played that character. There's no denying that. But we can start to think about how that statement only makes sense if you know what Star Trek is and you know the different characters, you know who Spock is, you know who Kirk is and all of that, that you know that universe. Um, so in order, to, in order to make sense of that statement of identity, it has to bring in things that aren't identical, otherness, right? 
it only makes sense in relation to other things that um, you may not be thinking about when you say Leonard Nimroy is Spock. Um, you're not thinking about the whole world that makes that statement sensible, but it requires all of this other stuff. So the identity of, of Leonard with Spock requires all of this otherness, non-identity, all of the things that that's Leonard, Leonard Nimroy isn't. Um, I mean, even think about it like eating your breakfast in the morning. You know, you, you can think of your breakfast cereal in an atomized way and your breakfast cereal is just breakfast cereal. But there's all of this other stuff that's going on that brought your breakfast cereal to the table that helps you understand what breakfast is in relation to lunch and dinner, that helps you understand um, the, the culture of it. I think there's all of these other things going on. So whenever you say cereal is cereal, um, it's, it, it, it requires a whole background of things that you're not aware of in order to make sense of that statement. So there's an example of like a, um, of a type of contradiction that's just in reality itself. When I'm talking about something, I also having to, there's a certain extent to which what it isn't is playing in the background and has to be taken into consideration. Uh, without that, um, uh, we wouldn't be able to speak about anything. I mean, the, the basic example in philosophy is the difference between being and nothing, right? So you think of stuff that is, stuff is being, and then nothingness is nothing, right? And there, that's an opposition, and they're completely different. But actually, are they, right? If they're completely separated, pure being is just pure stuff. It's kind of indistinguishable from nothingness. It's just, it would be a pure, uh, unmovable lump. Uh, what being is, is this becoming? Becoming is the contradiction of being and nothingness. So being and nothingness combine in this contradiction and then it's becoming. Things corrode, things grow and things fail. Um, pain is a great example for Hegel of a contradiction in life. Because when you suffer pain, you are a living being who is confronted with something that is destroying you. A type of nothingness, a type of like destructive force. So the very experience of pain is the outburst of a contradiction in reality. And although we can all hope for less pain in our lives, if there was no suffering, no mental suffering, no physical suffering, there would be no life. Because life is the contradiction between being and nothingness. And pain is the name for the bringing together of being and nothingness, right? It's a, pain is a say, an affirmation of life, life encountering something that is at war with life, that is that is ripping it apart. Um, and so in that way, Hegel is saying the contradiction animates life. Now, in a similar way, Freud is doing something with the symptom. The symptom is pain in our lives. We have suffering in our lives. And a symptom is kind of like the confrontation of um, conflicting desires within us coming together to some, some contradiction or deadlock in, for example, uh, you want to leave the house, but you also don't want to, you want to stay in, you want to protect yourself from seeing other people. And this conflictual thing uh, means that you're always fatigued, you just always feel fatigued. Um, so you can never go out because you're always feeling tired. 
this sim- it's a symptom is the outburst of fatigue in this situation. Fatigue isn't always this, but it can be for some people. Fatigue is the outburst of a contradiction in the individual. Or um, uh, something I've seen with some people with fatigue is they both want to work very hard and also they want to protest against working, right? Um, you know, that there's something in them that's driving them to work very hard. And yet there's another part of them that's saying life is not about working, working, working. There's a protest against that. And the fatigue is again the eruption of that contradiction in their life. Because whenever you're fatigued, you can't really work. You work, but you, you want to rest. And so it's, it's kind of like the explosion of the contradiction. So what Hegel does is he says, right, we take reason absolutely seriously and we start to follow step by step where it goes through thesis, through antithesis, and then not a higher synthesis, but rather we resolve one contradiction only to find a deeper one. So even in a personal level, and we'll come to this in other seminars, but at a personal level, you might go to a therapist with a basic headache and a basic depression. And the depression might initially come out that you can't be with someone that you love. Uh, And then as you start looking at it, you start to maybe see that you've put up obstacles in the way of being with that person. There's part of you that wants to be with them and doesn't want to be with them. And the, the contradictory desires are causing this depression. But then you might go a little bit deeper and you might go, this is connected to my relationship with my parents. But then you don't resolve that. You then go deeper and go, oh, this is connected to just the the very act of life, that life is about um, being and non-being, having and not having. And, you know, I I need to come to terms with that, right? And so what happens is the very superficial... Uh, contradiction that you go into therapy with gets deeper and deeper and deeper until you encounter the contradiction that you are you can't do away with the contradiction because you are the contradiction and that's the cure the cure is when you are able to go through this very difficult process and you can't just do it intellectually you can't just get there you have to go through this process like Hegel's philosophy you go through the process and eventually you get to the deadlock in, in your life and you're able to directly uh, embrace it. And that can you know, in, improve your quality of life. It can help you affirm more in your life. It'll help you in affairs of love and in affairs of vocation. Right. Um, this is something that was lost very early on after Hegel's death. A lot of the people who followed Hegel after him um, they, uh, they kind of took this process on but changed it slightly so that the point was not to get to this intractable contradiction at the heart of reality and the heart of thought but rather you keep going through these contradictions until eventually you get rid of the contradiction. Now this can be called, like this has always been the position of the right. And I don't want to do politics yet. There's a seminar we're going to be doing on politics. But the right has always been interested in the notion of an organic whole, a world that is one, that is at one with itself, and there is a contingent imbalance that enters into the world that can be removed. Um, 
And so even within the left, even within someone like Karl Marx, who was a young Hegelian who took on Hegel's work, even in some of Marx, you get this notion that the contradictions in political economy that start back in hunter tribal uh, societies and move through, moves through aesthetic, uh, Asiatic societies into societies of slavery, into societies of feudalism, into capitalism, eventually into socialism and then communism. That this, this movement is, for, for Marx, a movement of contradiction and contradiction. So every mode of production, every epoch, is an attempt to reconcile the contradictions of the last epoch. But eventually, for Marx, at least in some part, parts of Marx, there is this idea that communism is the reconciliation of the contradiction. It is the point when the contradictions are done away with. Um, and that is potentially where you get the right-wing deviation of the left. That is, that is where you get Stalinism in that kind of claim. Uh, a true Hegelian is saying that the, the issue with life is not to reconcile ourselves, get rid of the contradictions within our political system and our individual life, but rather to uh, not repress it, not run away from it, not push it down, but to rather create a community that is able to embrace the contradiction. And that's what brings salvation and healing to society. Um, that the violence of society is constantly the attempt to promise oneness and wholeness. Um, because then when you do that, you get into the scapegoating mechanism where there's always some contingent thing that's stopping it. If only you could get rid of that, then everything would be great. This is the reduction of uh, contradiction to opposition. So what happens is all contradiction is reduced to an opposition. And if we can just get rid of the opposing thing, then everything will be fine. Okay, so uh, what else do I want to say? Yep. Um, I mentioned about the difference between the analytic and continental philosophical tradition. Because in analytic philosophy, uh, it basically is birthed from the idea that the, the, law, the laws of thought are unbreakable. Um, that this is where Hegel goes wrong. Um, but actually, even within analytic philosophy, you have this notion coming up. So, for example, Russell's paradox. One of the things that Bertrand Russell did was he kind of showed, I think it was Frege's work, where Frege was attempting to create a kind of logical system that was completely consistent. And Russell basically showed that this was a fool's errand. It was impossible. And he created a... It was a logical... Uh, he showed how logically... Uh, any system that attempts to grasp the whole of reality will fall into contradiction. And um, if you want to look it up, one of the ways to understand what, what Russell was doing is through what's called the Barber's Paradox. Um, where basically you imagine a town where everybody in the town who does not shave themselves is shaved by this barber. Let's call him John, right? So John shaves everybody who doesn't shave themselves. And that's fine, that's a system that makes sense. The only question is who shaves John? Because if John uh, shaves himself, then he shouldn't be shaved by the barber, but then he's being shaved by the barber if he shaves himself, right? So he, it's a contradiction. John can neither shave himself nor not shave himself, right? That's kind of like this notion that in set theory, there's always a set that 
can't be accounted for. And what Russell's paradox shows is that within logic, there is a point at which it falls into contradiction. Now, this is what Immanuel Kant was doing. So Immanuel Kant came just before Hegel. And Kant basically showed that pure reason gets us to deadlocks. He called them antinomies. When you use pure reason, you can get to argue that God exists or God doesn't exist, that there is freedom, that everything is determined, that the universe is eternal, that is temporal. Right? All of pure reason gets you to these opposite positions. Um, and therefore, Kant said, reason doesn't get us to reality. It can't penetrate into what he called the noumenal realm. We are forever separated from it, except for in an experience of the sublime. Um, and the sublime is this negative experience in which, in which your mind is brought to the idea that there is something beyond conception. You're able to think that there's something beyond thought. You can't think it, right? But you're able to, you're able to experience it and you're able to, to some extent, put it into language. Uh, but you can't get there. You can literally just go, there is everything I can think and then there is something that I cannot think, something greater than being. And this is connected to the philosopher Anselm uh, from the scholastic period. But then Hegel comes along and Hegel says, hold on a second, Kant is right that whenever you use pure reason, you come to contradictions. The only thing that Kant was wrong about is that he didn't see this as a description of reality itself. He thought that this showed that we don't get to reality. Whereas Hegel said, what Kant just kind of glimpsed was that reality itself at its deepest level is not at one with itself. It is, it is in chaos. So the difference between the analytics and the continentals is continental philosophy takes seriously this idea. Not all continental philosophy, but they take seriously Hegel, whereas analytic philosophers generally think that this takes you out of the realm of philosophy. The other thing then is this makes Hegel not a progressive, right? Because a progressive is someone who sees progress within thought, progress within life. And you can basically kind of like perceive where it's going. You can see the arc of history and you can see where it's moving and you can talk about the right side of history and the wrong side of history. Um, Hegel isn't a progressive because, because thought isn't moving forward in kind of this to an amiga point. Like there's a point where it's all going and we're just moving slowly towards it. So for a progressive often, they're someone who knows where things are going, at least the next few steps. And then, you know, what they can do is they can love their enemy in, in a patronizing way, but ultimately they know where things are going. For Hegel, it's different. For Hegel, it's apocalypticism. Uh, uh, progress is always retroactive, right? When you look back, you see progress, right? But at, the, at, the, at every moment in time, all there is is conflict. You have different positions and you get into your room and you fight about them and you wrestle with them and novelty arises out of that conflict and that wrestling. You know, so something can arise that no party could have imagined. But in the debate and the conflict itself, novelty, new ideas arise and then that's what kind of kind of helps the society and then when you look back you can see progress you can kind of like retroactively create pro progress but when you're looking forward all you have is the contradiction of the society that you're in all you need to do is bring it to the surface 
express it, see it, wrestle with it, um, allow it to, to be felt. And as you really do that, then kind of like uh, you will find ways to navigate it and kind of like um, do something with it and move forward. This is called democracy in politics. Democracy is like a, a whole the society in conflict with itself, but in such a way with a state that is able to bring novelty out of the democratic process. So sometimes it goes completely wrong, that's always the danger of it. But sometimes when it goes right, it means that we can create um, uh, positive changes within society that come out of the conflict of various opposed uh, factions, right? Um, so yeah, that's kind of like democracy is, is one of the ways that this can be understood. Like the chaos of the not at oneness of society that is able to kind of be brought together in a productive way to often and not always create something um, that is beneficial. Right, let me see. So contradiction is necessary. That is Hegel's um, position. Uh, even it's kind of like the liar's paradox. If I say I'm a liar, then that's ultimately a contradiction because I'm saying I'm a liar. Am I telling the truth? If I'm telling the truth, I'm not a liar. You know, this, that, that kind of paradox is not just an exception. It's something that is, is, is in thought itself. And um, it, is, it is only in moving th uh, through the different problems that you come to see this. Now, I just want to kind of finish up this introduction, try and make this clear because I know I've kind of bounced around a lot. But it's simply this, is you have the law of non-contradiction. You have the laws of thought. Um, you have this idea of a wholeness and a completeness. Um, and I guess on the other side of that, you have um, the notion of the two, binary thinking, right? So all oneness spiritualities are against binary thinking, right? And they're right to be against binary thinking because binary thinking is its own type of law of non-contradiction, right? There are being and nothingness, there is masculine and feminine, there is light and there is dark, right? So binary thinking splits the world into these different parts that need to find balance, right? And then oneness thinking is about saying that, that, this, uh, that this is a type of illusion um, or a type of disturbance and everything is really interconnected and really one. Hegel is saying neither of these. He's not saying that the world is one or that it's two. Uh, he is saying that it's less than one. He is saying that the universe is one that is at war with itself. It is a one that is not one. And that antagonism that is at the heart of reality is what animates everything. That's what gets everything going. That's what explains evolution. That's what explains the very existence of the universe, that's what explains subjectivity, the unconscious, all of these things come from the idea that the one is not one. But it generates a temptation and a desire in us to get rid of the antagonisms, to get rid of the contradictions, to see them as contingent, to see them as things that we can remove from life. But Hegel says, no, you cannot remove them. The danger is in trying to think that you can. That's ideology. Ideology is basically a system that tries to take the contradictions of reality, reduce it to opposition, 
and make you fantasize that if only you get rid of the oppositional thing, the Republicans or the Democrats or the atheists or the theists or the Muslims or the immigrants or the, uh, the alt-right or whatever it is, but you know, if only we get rid of this group, then everything is going to be fine. Now, the interesting thing is not all groups are equal, right? Some of the most violent groups that exist, fascism is a great example. Fascism is a group that exists precisely because it is called an ideology. Fascism exists precisely because it cannot um, look at the contradiction that is life. So what is required is opposition, the figure of the Jew, the Jewish community are disturbing the oneness of their organic system. I mean, Hitler's constantly talking about organic systems, the, the, the society as a type of organism or body that is being penetrated and violently disturbed by an external force. But that means the Jewish community is the fetish object for the fascist, right? A fetish object, there's two, two ways to understand it, Marxist and Freudian way, but you can think of the, uh, the, a fetish as the object that prevents you from seeing the contradiction at the heart of reality. Right? So the fetish object is the object that so that basically covers over the inherent antagonisms that exist within society. Um, so the fetish object can be a president, it can be a political group, it can be anything, whatever it is that, that, that stops you from thinking and, and looking at the fundamental lack, that, that the deadlock that is reality itself. And if you can help a, an individual come to terms with that, you're undermining fascist ideology, right? You're, you're actually undermining ideology as such, because ideology is ultimately covering over the cracks. Uh, so ideology critique is about trying to expose the cracks by showing fetish objects as fetish objects, as attempts to cover over. So for example, if you're in a church and you're going to help the poor because you think that you're good news to the poor and you're going out there because that's a problem. Society is unbalanced. There's a problem and you know, we give the poor food, education, help the poor. Um, that's all very well, but the poor then are a type of fetish object that is preventing you from seeing that there's a problem within the society that you're a part of that's generating the poor. The poor are not the problem, they're the solution to a problem. They are um, the result of some problems that are within our society. So the poor are not like a, a rece receptacles of the good news. They are the bringers of the good news. We are not good news to them, they are good news to us because they can expose to us a problem within our society that's then generated a homeless community that then we can manage, we can arrest, we can push around, we can, we can uh, locate in a particular geographical position rather than seeing that perhaps it's connected to wider economic and political issues that we are embedded in. So the idea is that uh, always whenever you avoid the contradiction, you turn, uh, you turn the world into opposition, you get into scapegoating, and scapegoating is where there is some group that if you remove, then everything will be good. And for Hegel, no, the answer is in ultimately exposing um, this not-at-oneness 
of the world. Now then, religion at its core is a, is a type of oneness thinking, right? Religion in its confessional forms is always about organic wholeness and oneness and return to the womb and the primordial absolute uh, dependence, the, um, the experience of the oceanic oneness with everything, right? That's kind of the core of, of religion. Religionless Christianity is the critique of that. It is the idea that it's a dialectic. It's that peace is in embracing the conflict. It's that life is in the embrace of the death. It's that the, um, the good is found, kind of the, the plentitude of being is found by embracing the lack, right? The very, it, it, the dialectics is always kind of the choice of the wrong thing. Um, you know, we often, think whenever we're presented with two possibilities, traditionally, you try to find a way to reconcile the two. And if you can't do that, you pick the best one. But in dialectics, you pick the worst one. The worst one is like, you know, to live, you have to die. In order to have confidence, you have to embrace doubt. In, in order to find light, you have to walk into the dark, right? So it's, a, it's, always, a, it's always a choice in the wrong direction in order to get to the right place. <laughs> um, and uh, weirdly then you try to make the right choice and it ends up being the wrong one. And that's because in a way, what dialectics is about in its true form is about entering into this contradiction, this deadlock, this lack at the heart of reality, which can be called original sin, original lack, um, rather than trying to avoid it or cover it over. So that is hopefully a bit of an introduction to this five-week course. I, uh, I feel I probably put a lot of you off by talking like this, but um, and you begin to see that when I talk about perennial philosophy, psychedelic enlightenment, the new age, confessional Christianity, you probably begin to see that all of these in different ways are promising a type of oneness, whether it's a oneness that can be overcome by saying certain prayers, that is a real, you know, guilt, for example, is a real disturbance that you have to be forgiven for, or the, the disturbance that you feel in your life is an illusion that doesn't need to be forgiven, it needs to be seen through, right? So either, either way, it's the same kind of thing. And what Hegel is trying to do is he is saying that through this painful process um, of going deeper and deeper into thought and exp exploration of reality, you discover that the world is not at one with itself and that actually we need practices that help us come to terms with that, that help us realize that we can't get rid of the chaos in our lives because we are the chaos. And actually people who are very obsessively tidy, for example, are people who cannot uh, confront the chaos that they feel in their life. People who collect obsessively every magazine, they want every gap filled because they're terrified of the gap that's within them. You know, putting that last magazine in that fills the gap so you've got all 100 magazines is only the realization that you cannot fill the gap that is within you. So the obsession with order can be simply a reaction formation against addressing and confronting the chaos that is within us. And weirdly, if we're able to embrace the chaos that we are, we'll find our lives more ordered and, and, and we'll find our way around it more easily. 
So that's the kind of dialectic process. And what we're going to be doing in the next four weeks is I'm going to take this notion of contradiction and I'm going to try to show how it works itself out. How it works itself out in the world of self-help. Because in self-help you have on one side the idea of how do I get better and better and better and progress to a better person, get rid of the problems in my life. So I'm going to contrast that with a weird notion of grace. Grace is you don't do anything, you don't have to do anything. You're not okay and that's not okay and that's okay, right? Grace is you don't have to go anywhere. And weirdly how grace is an answer to self-help. And then we're going to be looking at politics. A politics of if only we get rid of X group, then everything's going to be great. And contrast that with this radical uh, paratheological politics that is the notion that no, we need to embrace conflict, find the antagonisms within our society, bring them to the surface, show them for what they are, and together find ways to um, make those contradictions work for us, not get rid of them. And then finally, Christianity, confessional Christianity, which promises us a return to the womb, to the one, uh, to a radical Christianity that is about a self-divided God, a God who becomes human through kenosis and experiences God's own alienation from God's self, and how this self-alienation is actually um, a way of drawing us into that experience of lack within ourselves so that we can create a new type of community called the collective of the Holy Ghost um, that is able to embrace this lack, you know, centered around uh, death, death of God, the Last Supper, the Eucharistic meal, this embrace of this contradiction and that a new God arises out of the death of that, of that religious God. So that's what we're going to try and do. Um, how long are we talking? You have been talking for about an hour. I'm just going to look to see if you have any questions. <laughs> and, uh, and then we'll do it from there. Okay, there's lots of people talking. Um, oh yeah, so Adam says, it seems like you're communicating a hierarchy of contradictions within Hegel. Also, there is a binary field to it. Wondering about reality just occurring intentions that when learned create more. Okay, yes, so... Let me take that, that's great. It seems like you're communicating a hierarchy of contradictions within Hegel. Yeah, it's kind of like that, except, you know, hierarchy seems like, you know, almost like it's getting higher and higher. Uh, whereas for Hegel, it's kind of going deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, that the contradiction uh, at a very everyday level, like a very weird contradiction about how you both love the person you're with and hate them, eventually gives way to deeper and deeper contradictions to, until you get to the contradictions reality itself. So yeah, there is this kind of movement in Hegel. And he says you have to go through the movement. You can't start with the idea of contradiction. That's, that makes no sense. You have to go through. So yeah, and then you say there's a binary feel to it. Oh yeah, I think I addressed that probably after you asked the question, where I talked about how for Hegel, it's not like there's two. That's the, that's what I was talking about, that the wrong reading of Hegel, where there's the thesis and then there's the opposite and then there's a synthesis. So there's this binary movement. For Hegel, it's not binary. It's um, a not at oneness of things. It's not paradox, it's parallax. So a parallax view is where you look at something from one angle and then you look at it from another and the two things are irreconcilable. The difference in perspective is the same thing you're looking at, but from the different perspective, they're completely changed. 
So we have particle duality as a good example. That's not a binary and it's not a one. It's a, it's a less than one. Um, so, so interestingly, and there should be a book in this, I'm sure there is a book in this, and, he, and Shizek wrote a book that touches on this called Less Than Nothing, but there needs to be a book that really connects physics with Hegel. I think that's a really interesting thing because you can see the world of quantum mechanics as something that Hegel was talking about in the world of philosophy. Um, so yeah, it's not so much a binary, it's a weird non-identity. Uh, one of the laws, as I said, is the law of identity, as something is what it is. And Hegel is saying, no, things are not what they are. Things are in a weird type of superpositioning. Um, so that's that bit. And then what else did you say? Bangla, wondering about reality just occurring intentions. Yes, Hegel wants to reject that notion. This is what can also be called vitality. The idea that, well, the world is vital and it has tensions. And, and, and as we kind of like embrace the vitality of life, um, we can kind of move forward. Hegel chooses contradiction over vitality, uh, or as you say, tension, uh, for a very particular reason. And it's because for him, vitality and this notion of uh, someone like Deleuze, philosopher of vitality, th this Deleuzean kind of notion of a plentitude of being and life is in, in this wonderful series of tensions, it still gives rise to this notion of uh, a kind of like it, it doesn't do justice to the truth really and the truth is is deadlock the truth is deadlock that it's not that life is vital and energetic and intention it's actually at this weird fundamental level it's knotted together in a contradiction and um and, and may i think and as we move on that might become clear what the difference is there but also read uh, if you're interested there's a I think it's chapter one actually of the book where uh, Todd McGowan talks about the difference between vitalism and contradiction uh, to try to bring out the differences between those two. Um, oh yes, Adam says, yeah, <laughs> you, you have, I started answering the question as I went on. Uh, there's Cam, hey Cam, the cross of reality. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to jump to the conclusion here, but the reason why Hegel finishes with religion, when he, he started his phenomenology of spirits ends with Christianity, is because he sees the cross as the coming together of contradiction, the highest and the lowest on the cross, you know, God and human, uh, the self-alienation of God. Like, for Hegel, there's something so profoundly scandalous about Christianity that it captures this essence, this truth, in a cultic way, and cultic in the nice sense of the term in, in the sense of like in a community liturgical way uh, and actually this is what Kierkegaard understood and Kierkegaard saw himself as a critic of Hegel but Kierkegaard understood that Christianity is a fundamental scandal and what's the scandal well the scandal is against this oneness this wholeness this this kind of like neatness Kierkegaard's whole thing is Christianity is an offense to this to this notion, and he called it Christendom, right? It's an offence to Christendom. So um, you can kind of read Kierkegaard as a type of Hegelian in that kind of way. Uh, let's see. Deep Dive Spirituality says, how do you think Hegel would talk about the dialectic between certainty and uncertainty? Is the deadlock a certain uncertainty existing simultaneously with an uncertain certainty? Great. So, Yes, certainly and uncertainty. It's a similar thing. Hegel, 
has a very strong position. Like he is making a claim, and I, I say this, like people sometimes think that what I'm talking about is a certain doubt. Have a certain, you know, we don't know everything. We, uh, we're only human. We're not here for very long. Uh, we haven't been around for very long. Like, let's be humble about what we think. And there's a real value to that. But that's Kant. So a Kantian kind of theology is a kind of theology in which one says, there is a blueprint for reality. And even Kierkegaard says this actually, but there is a blueprint of reality, but we don't know it, right? There is, there, it all makes sense, but, uh, but not to us, right? And that's a reasonable position, right? I, I don't think it's right, and I, that's, this is the nub, you're getting to the nub of the thing, right? So there's Kant, and a Kantian philosophy and a Kantian theology is saying that we have to be humble, embrace doubt, complexity, and uncertainty, because we can't get to reality in itself. But then Hegel turns that obstacle into a positive claim. And his movement here is to say that the, the fact that when we try to use reason, um, we get to irrationality is actually because we're glimpsing something that's fundamental to reality. And it's the move from what's called epistemology to ontology. Epistemology is we don't know everything, knowledge-wise, to ontology which is we don't know everything because not knowing is built into reality so hegel's uncertainty is not a, it's not a claim to a lack of knowledge it's a claim to a fundamental knowledge and that's what he calls absolute knowing now there's two types of uncertainty there's the uncertainty of stuff we don't know and hegel is the first to admit will there'll always be more stuff to know right there's 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 never going to be a point where we go we understand everything but then Hegel talks about an uncertainty that is knowledge. And what he simply means by that is that there is nowhere further we can go when we see that reality is not at one with itself. When we see the contradiction, we have glimpsed the truth of reality. And no higher species, no more advanced species, no whatever will ever get beyond that. That's there. And the first type of un unknowing is ignorance, right? You kind of, you don't know stuff because you haven't read enough and also because we're human and we'll never know enough, right? Um, the second type is a philosophical unknowing. It's an uncertainty that you can be certain of. And I, I've said this in other seminars, but I'll just, I'll just mention it because I think, you know, it, it makes sense when you think about some progress we've made in the last couple of hundred years, where in quantum mechanics, as I say, there's this notion of superpositioning that fits with what Hegel's talking about, that at the very quantum level of reality, there is a not at oneness. Uh, we see it in mathematics with Gödel, where Gödel shows that mathematical system that tries to explain and totalize everything falls into contradiction. Uh, Gödel himself said that shows that mathematics doesn't give us access to reality, but uh, what one could say is actually Gödel showed that reality is not at one with itself. We also see it in biology with Darwin, the not at oneness of biological reality creates all of the creatures that we see. Uh, we can see it in Freudian psychoanalysis that the not at oneness of the subject is called the unconscious. So the, the subject is not at one with itself. And these, none of these are negatives. None of these are limits to our knowledge, right? Superpositioning, the unconscious, the antagonism in biology. They are, they are turning a lack into a positive. And the very first time we did this, well, 
probably was death, right? Death is a nothingness that we positivize, we call it something. So some anthropologists say, and I think it's a very good argument, that you know, human civilization starts when you bury the dead, right? So there are animals that don't, you know, whenever something dies, they just move on. But when creatures, when animals start to bury the dead, what they're doing is they're positivizing a negative, right? They're making death, which is ultimate nothingness, into something. They're calling it something. Uh, just by the fact that they're burying, they're, they're showing that the nothingness is something. And then, of course, in mathematics, it's zero. Whenever, uh, you know, there was a certain point, I don't know when it was, I think it was Islamic scholars, they, they realized that they could make nothingness into something in, within mathematics. So at first you start with one. Of course, mathematics is going to start with one, two, three, four. The idea of making zero into a number was a, was a positivizing of a negative, a nothingness that was progress. So just, and Brian, when your question you're asking, just saying that basically Hegel is saying that there is a certain, there's a certain uncertainty that we'll always have because we don't know everything, but there is a certain uncertainty that we can be certain of. Right? And we can be certain of it once we've gone through the process of philosophy at the deepest level, that what we'll eventually come to is the, is the not at oneness of reality with itself. And he calls that absolute knowledge. So that again is the identity of identity and difference. You know, I said the law of identity is something is what it is. Well, Hegel talks about the identity of identity and difference, which is the, um, the, the, the certainty that is uncertainty. You know, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a weird form of, um, of dialectic. Uh, let's see. Okay, Julie says, would this be an okay example of a contradiction of being? In order to truly love another, I have to experience the anger and rage of resentment, move through this and find love on the other side. Yeah. I mean, yeah, de definitely. Definitely in the example of love is a beautiful example of the contradiction in reality. I mean, it's probably a better example than pain. You know, Hegel used the example of pain. But love is a, uh, yeah, how, what could you, I mean, love is full of weird contradictions. Well, one of the contradictions of love is you can't say why you love someone. As soon as you say why you love someone, like all of the concrete details, that's not love. Right? Love is kind of connected to something unnameable, je ne sais quoi, right? But of course, it also is connected with the person in their qualities, right? So there's this weird, <laughs> there's this weird, again, contradiction within love. And as you said, Julie, you know, the, the, the emotions of love, hatred, we all know this, hatred and love are not opposites. They are very deeply intertwined, right? Um, and uh, again, that's a, that's an experience. Like, can you really love um, without, you know, those all of those other emotions kind of mixed in in some sort of way? So I think yeah, love is probably a great example of it. And as you said, in being, because we're talking about two things. We're talking about contradiction in thought, and that's logic. And we're talking about contradiction in being, and that's the symptom. That's love. That's pain. That's the unconscious. Um. And then Julie says, people who are obsessed with tiredness cannot accept their chaos about what people who are just, uh, da, da, da. oh yeah, sorry, you were asking, about people who are obsessed with tiredness cannot accept their chaos. What about people who are just 
flat chaotic. <laughs> what does this say about us? Yeah, and, and by the way, I don't think all fatigue or tiredness is that at all. Just to just to say, um, is that uh, what what did I what did I say? Um, oh yes, about not accepting the chaos. Um, but 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 I do think a lot of fatigue can be a legitimate kind of like a contradiction that hasn't been faced. That's why in psychoanalysis, by the way, it's a it's a it's a talking cure because in one way it's like there is a, there is a contradiction in your life in your body. And just by seeing it and putting it into language um, can be enough to not get rid of the contradiction, but to help you navigate it and turn it into something good. And that's called enjoying your symptom. And so it's a really interesting process. It's like, right, you've got say fatigue or whatever it is. And if it's not biological purely, and most things aren't biological purely, that's the funny thing. They're so interconnected. Even things that are like heart disease, they still can be connected to um, you know the, your lifestyle which can be connected to your psychology which connected to stress you know so even in the most obvious things that are physical there can be a psychological dimension and then sometimes they can be very psychological you can go to a doctor and the doctor can find nothing wrong um, you know numbness in your hand that doesn't seem to have any um, biological uh, basis but that through psychoanalysis the numbness disappears so it's an interesting thing but the, the idea is that that humans and this is Hegel's big point is we are very privileged right the universe undergoes contradiction right when planets blow up when animals eat each other and all of these things go on they are enduring the contradiction of life human beings are a creature who can directly identify with a contradiction they can kind of conceptualize it and in doing so, they can have a certain kind of like a freedom within that contradiction. And that's what you see again in psychoanalysis is you're undergoing contradictions in your body and you don't know it. Maybe drinking too much, having an affair, doing all of this stuff, like taking drugs too much, whatever it is, you're doing all these things. And you're, so basically you are undergoing the contradictions. They are happening, but you're not aware of them. But as you become aware of the contradictions, they, the, the negative power of them begins to diminish. You begin to get control over them. You begin to work with the chaos and turn it into something productive. So I think that's maybe what you're asking. And I think it's a, this is a great example is that, that that's the cure. The cure in psychoanalysis is partly uh, the ability to, to bring the contradictions into your mind, into your thoughts, to not simply undergo them, but to kind of like, I suppose, take the driver's seat in them. You know, maybe you're a, pa you're a passenger, like a planet that smashes into another planet. It's just a passenger in the contradiction that is reality. But we can, to some extent, get into the driver's seat. Um, and by doing that, we can, at a personal and political level, you know, really, um, you know, it can be very positive. Uh, all right, that's like all the questions that were asked there. Thank you so much for checking in. I feel like I was kind of like um, uh, uh, spinning around a little bit, kind of repeating the same point again and again. And that will happen a lot in this course, but in each session, I will be taking it from a different angle. As I say, self-help, politics, religion. Um, uh, but I hope that that's giving you a little bit of a sense of the difference between, as I say, some of my contemporaries 
and what they're doing and what I'm trying to do with paratheology. And I hope by the end of the sessions, um, I will have maybe convinced you that we can't get rid of the antagonisms we have to confront. All right, take care. Bye-bye.